Welcome to the Media People Podcast, the show where we get to learn about the people who make up the media industry to find out where they started, where they are now, and the stories in between. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Keep is a mobile advertising platform that matches digital ads with reward-based moments. Founded in 2010, this relatively young company is turning the advertising world upside down with its unique offering. Today, we have the privilege of chatting with Keep's founder and CEO, Brian Wong, a young Canadian who ventured down to Silicon Valley after graduating from the University of British Columbia at the age of 18. That's right, I said 18, the same age when many students are thinking about applying to university altogether. Brian chats with us about growing up in Vancouver, life as an accelerated academic, and what it's like being CEO of your own company at the young age of 24. Brian, thanks a lot for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, before we go into everything, uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. What is uh, the, a typical Thursday like for a CEO? There is no typical Thursday. Um, I mean, it's always uh, bright and early, hopping on uh, a call, uh, jolting you into the morning. Um, if I'm in town, getting straight in the office. Uh, my routine in the morning, I actually publish something online. It, usually involves a quick swim because I have a swimming pool in my apartment complex. And it's one of the only exercises I can really do with my, uh, my knee injury. Um, and so, uh, you know, it usually starts off with something like that. Um, and then I'm also sometimes traveling. So I'll have a different routine kind of based on the city that I'm in. So there is no typical Thursday. So everything's kind of just play it by ear as you go along. Yeah. I mean, I'll know, um, usually a week before typically how my day will look like a lot of things are planned ahead um but it is always very back to back um and uh it's usually the day that everyone's rushing cuz we know that friday everyone's going to get kind of lazy and nothing's going to really get done so a lot gets crammed on the thursday I had one CEO years ago say to me, he goes, I like to try to have some sort of a routine and agenda, but I find in the morning, usually with the first email or phone call, I throw it right out the window. But uh, anyways, I wanted to go back to the beginning. Uh, where are you from? I'm from Vancouver. Uh, and so what was life like growing up in uh, Vancouver? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Would you consider yourself a musician? Uh, what were your hobbies? An athlete? Academic? Yeah, it was quite comfortable. I mean, Vancouver is a great place to grow up in. You know, you've got everything you want as a kid. I definitely kind of had a good mix of athletics and academics. I was playing ice hockey. Uh, quite a bit of it is really the only sport I know how to play, um, at least decently. And then um, I also obviously spent a lot of time studying primarily because of my accelerated school uh, schooling process. I ended up skipping a bunch of grades, four grades actually. And so uh, school quite dominated my life because uh, just making sure that I could get everything done in the period of time. Tell us a little bit about that actually. Uh, sorry, tell us a little bit about that because correct me if I'm wrong, you skipped two grades in elementary school and then two in high school? That is correct. Uh, and skipping in elementary school, did uh, I imagine there was a lot of summer school, maybe even some night school involved, or did they just kind of do some sort of standardized testing that said, we're just going to move you along to the next grade? It was all just standardized testing. It was primarily really a you know, slightly tweaked IQ test, and uh, there's usually one or two days of testing. And if they deemed you a fit, then they would let you skip. 
Um, and then, and then in terms of like content and curriculum, the premise of me being comfortable with skipping was that a lot of it's actually repeated. And that's true, uh, primarily because it's a way to help recall and sort of entrench folks uh, of all uh, learning types um, on the things they're trying to learn. But I decided, hey, don't necessarily need to learn something twice. And that was able to sort of be the, the, the big reason why skipping was was not as big of a challenge for me. Uh, did in elementary school did you skip both grades back to back or one? No, they were always staggered. It was always like so. It was grades two, seven, nine, and eleven. Gotcha. And uh, we know that uh, clearly you were advancing academically, but socially though, what does that what did that do to you as a kid? Were you excited to be uh, doing that, or did you kind of look at your friends and go, "I'm leaving these people behind"? Yeah. So when I started to skip. People always ask, oh, of course, you know, Asian, Asian parents, I'm sure your parents kind of forced you to skip and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the truth is my parents didn't want me to skip. They thought it would affect my social development, as you're uh, referring to. And uh, I think I turned out okay. Um, I never got shoved in a locker once, which I think is a good thing. Um, but then in terms of being able to uh, make friends – I had a, a core group of friends, but it was tough to hold on when you were moving from school to school. And I don't necessarily feel like I left people behind. I think, um, you know, there was just a – I was used to it because I ended up moving between probably four schools over the course of my skipping. Um, so I, I pretty much it became a norm. So when you landed in uh, high school, uh, did you do that? So you did that, in, I guess, in two years then. Yes, because I think in British Columbia, yeah, they did. They had the four-year program in Ontario up until just about seven or eight years ago. We still had five years of school, uh, and so when you finished high school, um, wait, sorry, how old were you when you graduated high school? I was thirteen. Wow! And uh, for university, you chose to go to the University of British Columbia. What made you pick that school? Because I imagine a number of schools were probably courting you for scholarships. I mean, based on your resume and everything you built up, I mean, MIT would have loved to have you. Believe it or not, the reason why we went to UBC is because the program I was in in high school is called the University Transition Program, and they had a, an agreement with the the university that every person who went out of transition program would get uh, essentially guaranteed acceptance into UBC. And uh, it was just much easier with UBC because there were the program itself, the transition program was actually on campus. So I was doing some of my high schooling pretty much on campus. And so gotcha. okay. we were already part of the UBC community. It was designed to be early entrance in university was sort of the premise of the entire program. Uh, I, I could have gone to other schools, but that would have required a lot of extra hoop jumping. And obviously, I think my parents would have preferred me uh, closer to home. And so I just uh, decided to go to UBC. It was very, very simple. Uh, what did you major in at UBC? I did a commerce degree or a business degree for anyone who doesn't like to use fancy colonial or commonwealth terms. Did you have a, a specific major or anything else within commerce, like a specialization per se? Yeah, I majored in marketing, and then I minored in political science. And we know you in the industry as not just a CEO, but as a tech guru. So, um, I mean, your knowledge of coding or anything like that, was that all extracurricular and self-taught then? Because it doesn't sound like it came from any formalized training in high school or university. 
So one of the things that I, I did growing up, and especially because I did spend a lot of time on the computer, um, was actually learn how to code uh, front end and then also uh, design um, user experiences and user interfaces uh, using Photoshop. Um, and the way that kind of came about actually was just a series of self-teaching with tutorials um, that I could find online, anything I could grab my hands on, uh, primarily because there was no formal online programs that I could really uh, tap into at the time. Um, so most of my online and tech knowledge was self-taught. Um, and then it was just personal interest that drove sort of a lot of the, the time I spent uh, on it, and then also building these tools with friends of mine that I would gather that I knew how to, uh, that I knew also knew how to code, things like that. And uh, as you were closing out your career at UBC, I noticed on LinkedIn that you did some time in Singapore as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, what it was like living there, studying there compared to uh, your time at UBC? Yeah, I think uh, going on exchange is like one of the best things that I ever could recommend to someone still in college. It's it's an unforgettable experience, but mainly because it gets you out. I think being in Vancouver, like I said, was super comfortable. So the opportunity to, to leave the nest, uh, get my parents used to me not actually being next to them all the time, yet also being able to experience a part of the world that was incredibly unfamiliar to me was uh, amazing. I mean, you get you know Singapore, you could jump over to any place in Southeast Asia within an hour flight. It was a travel up the wazoo, so you got, you know, we went all over from Thailand to Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, Taiwan, uh, Cambodia, you name it. It was a, it was a Vietnam. It was, it was a great time. And your time in Singapore, uh, I mean, leaving the nest, like you said, for the first time, did that kind of give you the confidence after graduation at UBC to pack up and go south to uh, Silicon Valley? Absolutely. It was more like giving my parents the confidence that I had the confidence. Um, but that was sort of the main uh, angle behind it. I mean, at the end of the day, I was still 18. Um, and, uh, well, it's 17 when I was in Singapore. And, um, you know, the the thing that it also showed me was just how big the world was. And I know that sounds so sort of uh, simple, but that is the thing that I think when you graduate, you only have the world portrayed to you the way you've interpreted it at school. Um, when you do end up getting a chance to go global, your perspective changes um, quite a bit. When you landed in Silicon Valley, did you already have a job lined up or did you just kind of have two suitcases and ambition and kind of said, you know, we'll see, we'll see where I land from here? So I didn't pack up and kind of move somewhere and then hope with crossed fingers that I would get a job after. I, I ended up doing quick trips to the U.S. and uh, – you know, the story goes, you know, I, I went down to Silicon Valley. I, you know, emailed a bunch of people that I thought I would want to meet. And these were all out of the blue. And then I met up with some people at, at a company called Dig, D-I-G-G.com. And then they ended up hiring me in business development. And then I still needed a visa, right? So they applied for my visa for me. It was an H-1B. It wasn't exactly simply the process took almost two or three months. And then, uh, and then that's when I moved down. Tell us briefly about your time at Dig, like what you did there in that business development role. So business development, as you know, can be very broad. My specific metric was to get the Dig button, which is similar to the like button and tweet button you see on a lot of news sites, integrated into as many news sites as possible. So um, I was supposed to build these relationships and then get them to put in a JavaScript snippet. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that, going through lists, trying to build up that that uh, network for Dig, 
Um, and then also one thing that happened kind of right in the middle of my time there, which really wasn't that long, I was only there for seven months, is uh, uh, we did a deal with Google for advertising. And one of the requirements they made for us was to make an Android app for Dig. And they kind of used the ad spend to fund the creation of that app. And then I ended up uh, sort of volunteering um, to help design and coordinate the, 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 the build of the app through a contractor. Um, the reason why me taking on the design was actually advantageous was because that was to minimize the cost. Um, so I ended up doing that, and it was actually quite uh, uh, amazing to have a chance to be sort of like a mini product manager for a period of time um, and then actually launch the thing. So all of that happened within seven months of, of me working there. But while, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, while you were at Dig, or maybe it happened just after, you uh, got into your first entrepreneurial venture. Tell us a little bit about uh, followformation.com. Yes, followformation actually kind of had been going on even before Dig. It was kind of me and my uh, buddies who we had started a web design agency with. So we had the capabilities and kind of was looking at the Twitter API when it came out and went, that's really cool. Let's build something with it. And, you know, so it was just a simple way to follow groups of people on Twitter based on your interests. So you're saying you like sports and we'd automatically follow the top, you know, you know, hundred sports, uh, uh, experts. And so it was really about getting you started. Um, so the thing though, as you can imagine, I say like a hundred, yes, in the beginning we could actually follow like thousands of people, uh, automatically. So it was like an auto follow tool. Um, but almost inadvertently, like we didn't create it for the purposes of spam. But as you can tell, uh, lots of people like to use things that aren't intentionally designed for something as something else. And so they uh, actually ended up using my tool quite a bit for auto following. Uh, and then we ended up getting blocked by Twitter. Uh, so it's just like a, a fascinating thing. I, we created it genuinely because we want people to to learn, like follow people right off the bat and get started off Twitter without, you know, trying to find manually, like, you know, a hundred people to follow, except it ended up getting taken over by spammers. So when Twitter kind of puts the kibosh to that, then, uh, I guess follow formation goes off to the side. Uh, tell us a little bit about, or actually tell us a lot about keep. I got so many questions about it. I had the privilege of uh, hearing you speak at, uh, ad clubs internet day in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. Uh, first and foremost, how did you come up with the idea? So I was on a flight um, after I got laid off from Dig. I got laid off because Dig had lost a lot, of it, a lot of its traffic and they had to cut 15% of its staff. Um, I remember flying around, uh, visiting some friends, and then I was on the flight and saw people playing a lot of games on their phones. And then I realized that there was this sort of this um, interesting dynamic when you're an entrepreneur, you, you get very curious when you notice something that's adopted at high, high levels. And mobile gaming was pretty much you know, one of the fastest growing things on smartphones at the time. And I kind of looked at people playing. I was like, why are they so addicted? And then I learned that everyone was kind of getting the satisfaction of leveling up or hitting high score, really the, the merits of playing games in the first place. And basically, I looked at that moment when someone was leveling up and then noticed that there was a lot of poor advertising that wasn't really taking into account that you were feeling good. And then it kind of hit me that in that moment when you're feeling good and leveling up in a game, why can't we actually use a brand to, do, to, to reward you, to acknowledge you instead of just to advertise to you? And so we ended up sort of using a, a mechanic of surprising and delighting the user, of rewarding rather than 
telling them what they needed to do to get rewarded and actually building a tool that would embed into games that people were already playing rather than sort of making them download a new app so there's no separate keep app or anything that you had to download it was just you know do whatever you were already doing and we'll just be there to delight you with something based on the fact that you had just achieved something and how did you go about getting the idea off the ground clearly you guys and your partners needed some funding to take it from a uh, uh, idea to reality well like most entrepreneurs that are drunk on an idea we just decided <laughs> to build it on our own and we did so we kind of just uh you know, roughed it out. I convinced my co-founder, uh, who worked with me at Dig as well at the time, um, to start to build out a prototype. And um, then we kind of ran into VCs. Naturally, that's what happens. It's just everyone's walking around. They're all VCs here. Um, I'm being actually serious. Like, I ran into a bunch of VCs. And they're like, yeah, come pitch us. And I'm like, all right, sure. Um, and then I didn't expect anything because at the time, I didn't even think it was that accessible for us. Um, and we told them about the idea, and sure enough, um, we got funded. What was the pitch process like to VCs? Because I think a majority of the population, when they hear VC funding and pitching, they think right back to Shark Tank or Dragon's Den. Was it anything like that? It is the opposite. Uh, Shark Tank and Dragon's Den, as you know, is for entertainment value. In the real world, at least when I was doing it, it was very much so around really, uh, uh, you know, so you're entering into sort of like a uh, a business relationship with a group of people that is supposed to help you accelerate your business to success. And their interests on, are obviously shared because if you succeed, they succeed. And so it's really more about vetting the team and then vetting the way you think rather than the pure idea itself. Because one of the partners of the firm that actually initially invested in us is famous for saying, you know, ideas fail, but people don't. And it's very clear to me that they don't really care about the idea itself in the beginning. It's about are you the group of people that can take this thing to success or whatever it is you end up building? That's actually a wonderful line there. Ideas fail, but people don't. Uh, question for you about the name. Where did you come up with the name Keep and uh, what does it mean? It's just a play on the word. We have taglines like keep it up, keep going. It's a keeper, keepsake. Uh, you know, get you, you kind of get the drift. And um, We chose it because we like the idea of keeping a reward also single syllable, easy to remember. Uh, the two I's we used as a spelling modification because A, the domain was cheaper, but B, I thought the two I's would evoke sort of the we in the gaming space, but most people just pronounce it as Kip, and then I tell them it's keep, and then they'll remember it for the rest of their lives, hopefully. As you've been building uh, Keep, uh, is there anyone, or even before that, is there anyone you tapped as a mentor, either, I mean, officially, like you know them personally, or someone in the media that you just kind of look up to? Yeah, I mean, I already had a mentor kind of coming into to everything um, at Dig. Um, I was hired by a guy by the name of Matt Van Horn, who actually recently just announced his new company, which is really, really cool. It's called June. Uh, it's like an intelligent oven but at the time, I was actually uh, hired by him in the business development team. And uh, you know, he's the first one to really believe in me and kind of give me a chance and brought me down to the valley in the first place. So Matt kind of was the early sort of hub that introduced me to a whole bunch of people that ended up being sort of the early mentors uh, to keep, uh, not to exclude Kevin Rose, as you know, as the founder of Dig, uh, even a few others like uh, Scott Caviton, who's the founder of Urban Airship. Uh, and then also some of my early investors like Keith Belling, who founded Pop Chips, um, and then also Rohan Oza, who was 
the CMO at Vitamin Water at the time. So there was a few people right at the beginning that were just extremely supportive that were willing to sort of put their, uh, uh, you know, sort of their best foot forward and making sure that we were able to succeed, at least during these very difficult sort of challenging early stages. And anytime you've got a dilemma, you can just pick up the phone and call any number of them just to bounce ideas off of them? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about these guys that I really like. It's, um, you know, obviously, they believe in the idea, but most importantly, they, they believe in me. And I think most of the the support you get in the beginning really is about their almost this, uh, their, their, their support and their unwavering belief that you will persevere. And that is sort of the one thing that's kind of kept, uh, you know, a lot of people involved is making sure that they're able to support, uh, you know, the founders and, 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 and helping the company grow. There was an interview that I saw years ago with uh, Bill Gates. It was in one of his final years at Microsoft before Steve Ballmer took over. And uh, he mentioned that he wasn't doing any coding, anything that he did initially in the job when he was at Microsoft. And he was completely hands-off from that. And I was wondering, has that happened with you now at Keep, where you were doing coding at the beginning, but you've kind of moved away from that and had to leave that with other people? It naturally happens. It's kind of comical. So I, I did a lot of the design in the beginning. In fact, the early units were my design. The early logo is my design. Pretty much everything I had to design. Now I pretty much don't design anything. And if I try to design something, people are like, Brian, leave it to us. Like we're better than you at this. And so I look at it as a good sign that the people I've hired are better than me at practically everything. So the things that I'm left with are Obviously, uh, dealing with investors, uh, uh, working with new clients, expanding existing relationships, uh, hiring is a big component of my job. This is everything from interviewing to sourcing candidates to, you know, wooing really high profile candidates over. Um, there's a lot of that involved. And of course, you know, a lot of PR and marketing as well, because our company is in a space where we have to continue to be top of mind for our clients. And I notice you do a lot of speaking at events. Is is that kind of a, a a big part of the sales push now for a company? I get social selling is kind of the term they like to put to it. Yeah, I think I find speaking extremely effective. You see, our our model is not one where when you hear it, you kind of immediately understand the the uh, the specialness behind it. Um, sometimes you just have to hear the story with it. And so, you know, when I'm able to tell the story. It's almost uh, incredibly alluring to people that hear it, and we win lots and lots of business as a result of it. So it is a very effective tactic, and so I do that with industry events, and I also speak sometimes to other entrepreneurs just because uh, I want to make sure that uh, we're able to pass along some of the things we've learned in the past few years. It's interesting because uh, a lot of people in your position – kind of start to uh, transcend into celebrity culture. They kind of become the figureheads of the company. That's what people turn to. And uh, I actually just wanted to go over some of the accolades that you've had. I mean, named to Forbes uh, 30 under 30 at the age of 20. Uh, You were named one of uh, the top five young entrepreneurs to watch by Mashable. So as you kind of transcend that celebrity culture, and I'm pretty sure we're going to hear more about you in that respect, kind of like they made a movie about Mark Zuckerberg, although he wasn't crazy about it. If they came to you and said, we're going to make a movie about your life and about Keep, who would you pick to play you if you had that choice? (laughs) That's a really bizarre uh, question for me because I've never thought of it, to be honest. Uh, but uh, it's really, to me, uh, 
not even thinking about it that way. Uh, I don't really want a movie made of me. <laughs> I, uh, I'd rather me portray me. Uh, I, it's, I don't know. I actually can't. Sometimes think it's it. inevitable. If it's a good story, Hollywood's going to jump in and they're going <laughs> to take that by the horns. Sure, sure. Um, I can't think of a skinny Asian actor that I'm aware of and approve in Hollywood at the moment. But what I do, I will let you know. Okay. Uh, Brian, I know your time is tight. Just got one last question for you. We close every uh, podcast with this. If you weren't doing what you were doing now in the media or the tech industry, what do you think you'd be doing and why? Yeah, so I, I think uh, I'd probably be in education. Um, I think education has been uh, a huge passion item for me, mainly because I'm a product of a very hacked together version of whatever I decided to design and really not the typical uh, path that, you know, the rest of the world goes through. And so there's one thing I really like to focus on and which is around timelines. I think the whole idea that people have to do 16 years of schooling before they can come out and read the world is just really weird. Um, and so there has to be different timelines for everyone and finding their passion and also finding out, uh, uh, you know, more about the, the areas that they do want to learn about rather than what they're forced to learn about. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the thing that I would probably spend a lot of time trying to figure out. So there's a lot of passion projects. And the interesting thing is even with Keep, I have the ability to use the technology to work with these industries. So Keep is already integrated into, I think, something like half a dozen uh, education apps. Uh, we're integrated into a bunch of healthcare apps. Uh, these are apps that are basically student-facing or healthcare professional or, or patient-facing. And because rewards are embedded in there, um, you know, we're able to help increase things like uh, you know, sort of learning speeds um, and also patient um, uh, diligence on things like taking pills, things like that. So it's really cool that just a simple idea and platform can be leveraged for good. And uh, these are ideas that we didn't ever even come up with. It's what our developer community came up with. Brian, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast and follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.